Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to Joel. You'll find that towards the end of your Old Testament. Uh, just go the, You can go to Matthew and kind of go back a little bit and you'll find Joel. While you're turning there, I need to make a couple of announcements. Um, next Sunday night will be uh, our Ladies Connection Night. Okay, and uh, if you're hosting one of those, could you please stand? If you're hosting Ladies Connection Night. There's more than that. In fact, if you look in your connection card, they may all be working in the nursery or something, but uh, if you look in your connection group, you'll find those names listed. And I've been told to make crystal clear that that is not just for people who have been involved in connection groups. That is open to everyone in our church, all the ladies uh, in our church, to come uh, to that night. And you can fill that out on the connection card if you would like to be a part of that and, and let, let us know what group you're planning to attend. But please... Uh, whether you're in connection groups uh, as a whole or not, uh, make, make a point to, to, to be around uh, and to fellowship with those ladies that night. The other thing uh, that I want to mention is kids camp. For the first time in over a decade, uh, we're taking uh, our children to uh, children's camp. And we're really excited about this. We found a really excellent camp over uh, in Texas that we're taking our kids to. Um, but it's not cheap. Uh, and, and so we want to give you an opportunity uh, to help those kids. If you notice, we have big families, tend to have big families in our church, and a lot of the families that are sending their kids are sending multiple kids. And so we're creating a, we've created a scholarship fund uh, where uh, you can give money to that um, and help those kids go. Uh, they're paying a deposit, and then uh, and any, any help we can get uh, to them, we want to do that. Um, if you do... Uh, if you do a half scholarship, which is $125, or a full scholarship, which is $250, um, we usually keep giving under wraps. Uh, you're giving safe. We don't let people know about your giving. But if you give that much, um, you're, you'll have a kid that you're paired with, and they'll know that you gave. And then we want them to be able to report back to you what they learned at camp, the fun they had at camp. And we just want a, a great relationship of those kids knowing uh, that someone cared enough about them to send them to camp. And so we're not going to announce it to the whole church who gave to that, but if you give a, a half or full scholarship, uh, we want to, uh, to let, let the kids know uh, who did that for them. And so you can do that in a couple of ways. Uh, in, uh, on the app, on the giving app, you'll find a drop-down that says scholarship menu uh, or scholarship fund. Um, you can fill that out, Children's Camp Scholarship Fund, on your offering. Or, uh, and next Sunday, we'll actually have a slip. If you're not ready to pay it all, right now we'll have a slip where you can commit to do what you're going to do, and then over the next few months, uh, pay that out. Uh, and so there's several ways uh, to give uh, to that uh, great endeavor of Children's Camp. So we're, our current season, uh, our current series is Major messages from minor prophets. Now, we mentioned this last week that they're not called the minor prophets because they're not as good as the major prophets. Minor prophets simply refers to the length that the books tend to be. Um, if you look at the New Testament authors, you'll see that they saw the minor prophets as anything but minor in importance. Well, we saw last week that Paul quoted Hosea in Romans 9, and, and we'll see today uh, that Joel was quoted in one of the most important moments 
of the life of the early church. And so these were very, very major writings uh, to the New Testament authors, and they should be to us, even though some of them tend to be small. And Joel is one of those books. It's only three chapters long. So you can go home today after the sermon and uh, after you eat and in about 10 or 15 minutes uh, or less, uh, you can uh, knock out uh, Joel. So this morning in Joel, we want to simply look at the idea of judgment and repentance because that's what Joel is about. It's about the threat of judgment, judgment that has already come on Israel and the threat of more judgment and the repentance that God calls his people to and we serve a God who judges in his holiness he judges we also serve a God who is rich in grace and mercy who gives us an opportunity and calls us and equips us to repent and that's what we want to talk about this morning what we want to do is start because I kind of see this as the heart of Joel, and that is chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start off reading verses 12 through 17, and what we're going to see here is a call to repentance. It says this, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. Who knows whether He will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind Him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your uh, God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly gather the people consecrate the congregation assemble the elders gather the children even nursing infants let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber between the vestibule and the altar let the priests the ministers ministers of the lord weep and say spare your people O lord and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? So the first thing I want us to notice this morning is, is God's judgment revealed in Joel. And we see here uh, a past judgment of God. And um, Joel is, is not real specific in time and what's all going on and who's ruling. There's not a lot of specifics. And so, there's a lot of debate as to when Joel falls in the timeline. And so it's hard to kind of know what exactly they were being judged for, but it just typically tended to be in the days of the minor prophets just uh, apathetic towards God and turning towards idols. That typically was how it worked in this time. This was how they rebelled. And so we see God's past judgment of Israel. From the opening of Joel, we see the aftermath of a judgment of God. In in fact, verse 2 asks the question of the people, do you ever remember it being this bad? That's how bad things are when the author asks, hey, do you ever remember it 
Or do you remember hearing even from your fathers that it's ever been as bad as it is right now? And this judgment has come in the form of a devastating plague of locusts, okay? That's not the world we live in, right? We don't, we don't understand uh, a plague of locusts, but to a, pla- a place that, was, that the whole, uh, pe- all of the people thrived on agriculture, it was horrible. We see in uh, verse 4 here in chapter 1, what the cutting locusts left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. The land is absolutely devastated. That what the first locust didn't get, the second locust got, and what they didn't get, the third locust. I mean, we're just talking about huge devastation. Uh, We actually see here uh, in chapter 1 that the winos, okay, the drunks were crying because they couldn't get drunk. They couldn't find wine because it had all been devastated. And it says also, and the priests were crying because there was no offerings. People couldn't give grain offerings. They couldn't give offerings. And so they were weeping. So everyone from the winos to the priests were weeping because of the devastation that they found the country in. The entire land, every person, it even talks about the beast who were reeling from the judgment of God. And they have all come to the realization that it is a fearful, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, as Hebrews 10.31 says. But the most terrifying thing about the book of Joel is not, in chapter 1, the destruction we find them in. It's the fact that more is coming. More is coming that God is not done in His judgment of Joel. And so in, verse, uh, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm, On my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And so we, and people are divided in chapter 2 whether or not we're talking about another huge locust plague, or uh, most people kind of believe that it's an army that's being described, an army that's just going to come through and wipe out everybody. And so they are in the midst of, of not only this locust plague, you think that's bad, what's a day that's called the day of the Lord, which is usually reserved for apocalyptic literature in the Bible? The day of the Lord, how bad is that going to be? So they found themselves in a horrible position of being between horrible judgment and even worse judgment to come. But as we will see, there's still time for repentance with this coming judgment. The army was in the prep stage. We see this phrase, day of the Lord, several times in Joel, and there seems to be an immediate context, an immediate pouring out of God's wrath on the people. 
but then there also seems to be once God relents of, of bringing that day of judgment on them, then it begins to talk about, but there is coming a, a, a day of judgment for the nations, all of the nations that have rebelled against God. And so we see Joel kind of talks about this immediate, but then also this apocalyptic at the end of time. That's what we see in chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 12. We see God's future judgment of the nations. It says, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty man. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all of the surrounding nations. We see in chapter 3 that God makes a judgment, or I'm sorry, He makes a call to war. And it's almost comical. He says, hey nations, get everybody together, let's do this. Hey, why don't you take your plow, your, 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 your farm instruments, and beat them into an instrument of war. Come on, come on, bring it on, bring your rakes and your hose and your garden equipment to take on the living God. Let's do this. And they think they're going to war. They think they're going, uh, God's calling them to war. But you know what God's doing? He's calling them to judgment. That He's simply leading them into a valley where He, like a wine press, is going to stomp them into oblivion because of their rebellion and their mistreatment of His people. This is judgment. This is simply the wine press of God's wrath. So what can we do in the face of such a powerful God who has judged, who's judged His very own people, who's threatening His people with even more judgment, and who is saying, I am going to judge the nations and stomp them out. What do you do in the face of such a God? You repent. You turn to that God. And that's where we come to the text that we began with here in chapter 2. We see that God's calling them to repentance. God's call for repentance. We see repentance comes when we turn to God. Twice here, God calls His people to turn to Him. And first, to turn towards something. We have to turn away from something else. And so what God wants them to do is to mourn their sin. To mourn their status without Him. So we should mourn our sin. That's what repentance is. It's mourning our sin. It says in verse 12, with fasting, with weeping, and with Mourning. If we want to return to our God, we must 
turn loose of our sin. More than just turn loose from it, we must mourn for it. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted as the Beatitudes say. We must feel about our sin the way that God feels about our sin. When is the last time you truly wept for your sin? When is the last time you fasted over your sin? When is the last time you mourned your lack of sanctification? God calls us to weep over our sin. We see that it's an action not on the outside, it's an action of the heart. It says in verse 12, return to me with all your heart. Verse 13 says, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Last week in Hosea, we saw that God no longer wanted their sacrifices. He wanted their love and He wanted them to know Him. He was done, he was done with the outward signs. He wanted some heart movement towards Him. And that's very similar to what he's saying again here in Joel. When he says, okay, so like we don't really think about rending our clothes. Like, um, like that's not, we don't go to a funeral typically and, and tear open our clothes. But in biblical times, that was one of the ways they expressed grief. They expressed pain. We know Job, uh, when Job heard about the death of his children, what did he do? He tore his clothes, and shaved his head. And so what God is saying, don't, rend, don't rip your clothes. Rip your heart open. In my counseling ministry, I've seen people display outward guilt oftentimes. And man, sometimes it can fool you. It can look so, so real. The tears come, and, 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 but then in time you realize, well, no, they just were trying to get their spouse back. Or they were trying to avoid the consequences because they got caught, and they knew they needed to act a certain way, and so outwardly they showed all of this display, outward display of grief and guilt. But it, it wasn't real. It, it wasn't happening in their heart. It wasn't true repentance. And God's saying, I don't want an outward show of renting your clothes. I want you to rip your heart. I want it to be real. I want you to really and truly look and weep upon your own sin. Second Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. God's saying, I don't want a worldly grief. I want a real, godly, true grief for sin. 
But it's not only just about us looking at our wretchedness and our, the depths of our sin and, and ripping our heart open in grief. Repentance also, must, also comes when we have confidence in the grace and the mercy that comes after the rending. Look what it says, it's beautiful words. Return, in verse 13, return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And He relents over disaster. We see God calling them back to Himself, reminding them that, that He is a merciful God. And if that's plain to Joel, how much more should it be plain to us who live after the coming of Christ when God so much put on display in the sending of His Son, His grace and His mercy. But in moments of, of despair, of, of when we, we see our sin, we are tempted to forget the love of God. So often we know that we are not where we need to be in our pursuit of Christ and and. And, and the accuser tells us, man, God doesn't like you. How can God possibly like you? How many times have you done this after He's loved you with His steadfast love? How many times have you done this? You can't go back to Him again. You can't repent again. You've repented thousands of times and look where we are. And so we wait, we delay our repentance even longer because all Satan, the accuser, wants us to do is think about the judgment of God. But we have forgotten that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the next time the accuser says, you can't run back home. You can't go back to God again. You remind him that he's never left you. That there is no condemnation because you are in Christ Jesus if you are saved. That God's grace and His mercy have been given to us through Christ and again, if God's grace and mercy was visible to Joel after a locust plague, then surely it should be visible to us as we live after the glorious life and death and resurrection of Christ. Romans 2, 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But we can also, we can also presume on the kindness of God. Notice Joel refuses to presume on the kindness of God. Look what he says in verse 14. After he says, hey, God's a loving God, he says, who knows? He says, who knows what God's going to do? He's not saying, hey, this is, we're doing this because God's going to have to do this for us. He says, who knows whether he will not turn and relent 
and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. So many times we want to use repentance like a stick to hit pinata God to get what we want. Repentance is not a stick, and God is not a pinata. And for us to think, if I do this, then God's definitely going to do this and that and this and that, is to presume upon the kindness of God. It came down to this for Joel. He says, hey, God's holy, and we're not. And, and so we've got to repent. He deserves our repentance. We, we've sinned against the holy God. And he said, hey, and the nature of God is that he is full of grace and he's full of mercy. So let's see what happens. So we need to remember God's grace but not presume on it and think that because we turn back to him that everything's going to be fixed overnight. He's going to take all the consequences away overnight because it doesn't always happen like that. We see that repentance comes when it is comprehensive and it's urgent. First, it's comprehensive. We see here in verse 16, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. So the call is everyone Let's get, let's gather up, let's repent of, of our sins. From the old person, hey, get the wheelchairs, we're getting them all here. Hey, the nursing mom that just had a baby yesterday, hey, we get the wheelchair for her and get her baby, we're getting the baby here too. We're getting everybody here because we need, as a community, to repent and I think sometimes we lose that, not realizing that our church is a community. And we sometimes think, well, my sin doesn't affect you. That, that my sin doesn't affect anything at Wyatt Baptist Church. It's my personal sin. And that's just not how it works, folks. And, and your sin affects all of us. My sin affects you. Your sin affects me. And what, what might God do if there was comprehensive repentance from the youngest to the oldest at Wyatt Baptist Church that, that we just, we looked at our sin, we repented of it, and we asked God for forgiveness and we desired to, to know all that God has for us in Christ. But not only was it comprehensive, it was urgent. It says here, let the bridegroom leave his room. And the bride, her chamber. All right, as a pastor, I've been involved in many weddings. And I would not encourage the bridegroom to leave. That's bad. Because that bride, on that day, that wedding is happening. Maybe she has to bring another guy in after you leave. She, that wedding is going to happen. She's been waiting on that wedding all her life, I, and you just, I, I stay away from brides. 
all right, because this day is their day, and it's happening, and I'm just going to try to preach my sermon and just be on good behavior and make sure this thing happens for her. And it's saying the repentance of the day is so important. If there's a wedding, let's put that on hold. Let's put all that on hold. Let's get down here and let's get right with God. He doesn't let the preacher off the hook by any means. He says in verse 17, Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord. Again, the urgency that, hey, you don't, from the porch to going into the altar to worship. Don't even wait till you get to the proper place, but go ahead and weep and call out to God for God's mercy right where you are. You need to pray for us as pastors that we would lead the charge and always be humble men of repentance ready to call upon our God. So how does God respond when His people repent? Well, we see He turns away wrath. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. In other words, He called it off. Or He postponed it, at least. He postponed the judgment. We see that not only does he rest, not only does he turn away his wrath, but he restores blessing. Verse twenty four: the threshing floors shall be full of grain; the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter. My great army which I sent among you. So this is amazing. What God's saying here is, I'm not just calling off the judgment. I'm going to give you so much blessing and prosperity. It's going to be like the locust never came. The, the vats of grain uh, after next season, after this season, are going to be so filled overflowing with capacity, it will be as if there was never the judgment of the locust. Hey, does that encourage you? Does that encourage you that you serve a God that's able to not just call off wrath and judgment, but to rewind it? Which means that, man, if you've wasted a lot of your life on sin... And you think, man, I'm too old, or it's just been going on too long. You have a God that is able to fill up the years ahead so much so that it will be as if your rebellion and your judgment didn't happen. And even if He doesn't get to it all in this life, you could be guaranteed that in the life to come, He will fill up so much your days ahead and your days in never-ending days in eternity, that it will be as if you never lived under the hard times. And that relationship that you think, man, I, you know, sin has just hurt this relationship for 20 years, and we don't have that many years left, and so, man, it's too late. Man, God can fill up 
the future years of that relationship so much so that it will all but erase the years where sin and rebellion wounded the relationship. You think, man, my kids, I haven't been the parent I needed to be because of my sin, and, and I just haven't been a godly parent. And man, they're about to graduate. God can, God can fill up the months or the days left with so much godly joy and, and instruction that it'll be, it, can, it can be like those years never happened. What a great and glorious God we serve. God is going to even go further than that. He's going to go further than just filling their vats with grain. He is going to do more than just make the wine flow again. He is going to give them His presence. Verse 27 through 29. You shall know that I'm in the midst of Israel. I'm here. I'm, you're going to know that I'm here. In the midst of Israel. And that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. And your young men shall see visions. Even on the uh, male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. What good is all the material wealth that God can give if He doesn't give Himself? And that's what He says. He says, hey, I'm giving you all that, but I'm going to pour out my presence in an amazing, special way because of your repentance. And it's, the amazing thing is, is that in Acts chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, he quotes these verses saying, that day is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God to dwell with His people. What, a, what an amazing, amazing fact that God, you know, and, and, and that's what you know, Christ came to dwell with us, and then as He left, He sent the Comforter to dwell and be with us. And So He doesn't just give us good things, because good things aren't great. They're, they're nothing without Him. So He gives us Himself. We close with a little application. The great day of the Lord that was postponed in Joel's day is going to one day come at the end of time. And God in this moment is storing up wrath for that day that He's just going to pour it all out. Here's what it says in chapter 2, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as, as the Lord has said, and among the survivals shall be those whom the Lord calls. We know, uh, go to Romans. Romans, Romans 10, reading it uh, in verse 9, says this. 
Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. Verse 13, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is, there is Paul quoting Joel, say, he's quoting in the context of believing in Christ, that if you will believe with your heart of what, what, what God did in Christ, if you will trust that, everyone who does that, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, the way you fulfill Joel saying, call on the name of the Lord, ultimately, and in our time, is to believe and call upon Christ. And if you do that, you will be saved. Verse 3.16 says about this, this horrible day of the Lord when so many people will be wiped out. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters His voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to His people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So the same Lord that roars and is causing earthquakes and causing destruction is the refuge to His people. And so I come before you this morning saying, if you haven't ever, you've never called upon the name of the Lord, He is right now roaring and coming one day in wrath. But that if you will call on Him, He will become your refuge. You will call on Him and believe in, in, in your heart, in Christ. He will be your refuge. Don't delay. Don't presume on the kindness of God. They, they were urgent uh, in Joel. And that's why they were saved. And you don't want to mess around with this, you want to be urgent in your repentance. So what about the application for those who would say, I, I am a believer. I am. He is my refuge. Well, Joel begins with the description of the desolation of the judgment of God. But in verse 3, he says, tell your kids about it. Like It's important for us to remember that God is a God of judgment. God judges the wicked, which sends us, which should send us, if we're living in the gospel correctly, it should send us running to Christ. And y'all, that is the cycle of people that live the gospel out. That is our, the cycle of our lives. We at times catch glimpses, very often times, catch glimpses of our sin. And what do we do? We think about a God who judges. And what do we do? We don't start getting all, hey, I'm, I'm going to fix things. No, we, we, we run to Christ and, and we thank Him for His freedom. And then He helps us to grow. And we see more of our, of our sin and we're reminded God is a God who judges. And so I've got to constantly always run back deeper and deeper and deeper into Christ. 
Luther, it was Luther who said that all of life is a life of repentance. All of life should be repentance. Our, our life should look like Joel, a constant remembering of God as holy and then remembering that he is, of what he has done in Christ to show us that he is that God of mercy that we can always run to. I'm going to ask you to please stand as our musicians come. I just want you to respond. Respond to the call of Joel that he gave them. Let us respond to that urgent, that absolute dependence on God's grace and mercy that they showed. Let us live lives of that. Let's pray. Dearly Father God, I thank you so much that though you are a God who is holy and hates sin, and rightly so, you are a God of love, of mercy, of grace for those who call on you. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, I pray that they would, they would turn to you, that they would respond to you this morning. God, help us all as, as, as those who are Christians to always be repenting, to always be running deeper and further into dependence of Christ and the grace and the mercy of God in Him. God, move in our hearts this morning. Help us to respond to Your wonderful and glorious Word. In Jesus' name I pray.